When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march round the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called up the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward. March round the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going round it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched round the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given the city. 
and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from things from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Hello. It's good to be with you. Um, I wasn't here last week, actually. It's not often that you have a week where you're not in church, is it? Well, for me, it's not anyway. But um, I wasn't here last week, so uh, thank you, Sam, for for leading us last week and preaching from God's Word. Um, It's great to be back. Um, We have actually been able to go out visiting on the estate for the first time today, which was really great. And people were really happy to to be meeting us and chatting to us. Um, It wasn't quite the sort of fearful situation that you might expect. Um, We were were enjoying chatting to people. Um, We're in this book of Joshua. And uh, that was a long chapter, wasn't it? That was a long reading. Uh, So there's a lot of stuff in there. But we've just got one simple question to ask this evening. Okay, And it's this. What is it like? What we, what? I'll get out. What is it like to meet God? What is it like to meet God? What would it be like for me? What would it be like for you to meet God? And we're going to look at two people or two groups of people in this passage who meet God, and we're going to see what it was like for them. And we're going to think what it means for us. And um, so uh, the first group, the first person is Joshua. And he meets God in verse five, uh, 13 to 15 of chapter 5, and in a bit of chapter 6 as well. Um, and then 
The second group is Jericho. So easy to remember, Joshua, Jericho, two groups. And we're going to look at them tonight. Um, But it has been a few weeks since we've been in Joshua, and some people are joining us for the first time. So let me remind you where we've got to so far. We're in this book which shows that God makes a promise to give his people a land. And it's part of what he's doing in securing a future for his people. He brought them out of slavery and he's bringing them into the land uh, to be with him. They are his people. And it shows that God is doing what he says he was going to do. And it's not just important for for them then, it's important for us now to know that. Um, And the Lord being with Joshua specifically is really important. And it's that if they see that that God is with Joshua, then they will know that he is with them. That's what God was revealing in the river crossing. You might remember in chapter 4, with the Ark of the Covenant and the priests, and God going in the midst of the people through the Jordan. That's what he was showing them, that the Lord was with Joshua, and he was with his people. And now, right before their very first encounter with the inhabitants of the land, the people who they're going to go to fight against, the Lord confirms his presence yet again. With Joshua, and that's the first meeting in verses 13 to the end of that chapter. So let's read it together uh, from verse 13 to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the ground and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So remember, the people have just got into the land. This is the first battle they're going to face. And Jericho's walls are there and they're expecting a battle. And in the middle of the night, Joshua sees this figure standing there. You have to assume the picture is sort of like the likeness, but imagine how fearful he'd be. He encounters this man, and his question, I think, to a man brandishing a sword on a, on a battlefield is quite a good one, isn't it? The question of which side are you on? Like, are you with them, the enemy, coming against us? Or are you on our side? Sounds like a good question, doesn't it? But as we see from the response uh, in verse 14, which is no, that's a disconcerting answer, isn't it? You ask a question, which side are you on? Are you on their side or are you on our side? And the answer that comes back is no. It's not thinking, huh? It's not what I was expecting. I was expecting a simple answer to the question. But it shows that the question is not the right question. Because the question is uh, suggesting that it's a question for the Lord. And yet this is a question that Joshua himself needs to answer. The point is not, is the God on our side, but are we on his side? Which side are we on? And that's the question that we need to consider for ourselves as well. And Joshua, in, in the answer itself, it undermines the basis of the question, isn't it? It's not, God, are you on our side? But hang about, which side am I on? That's what it's like to meet God. And even Joshua is flat on his face, isn't he, to the, to the earth and worships him. And when he says, no, I, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. 
and now I have come. It reminds me a little bit of when Jesus, um, they went to arrest Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, well, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, it is I, or I am he. And the whole army fall flat on their face, don't they? The, the sort of holiness, the reverence of, of meeting God himself. Um, no. Which side are you on, Joshua? Uh, that's the question we need to answer too. And you see, uh, the p- first picture of what it's like to meet God is this. He's flat on his face to the earth and he worships. And following this, uh, Joshua's second question is a better one. What's his second question? In verse, uh, verse 14 at the end, Joshua fell to his face to the earth and worships and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Very different question, isn't it? What does my Lord, he recognises his place, the Lord's place is higher and he recognises where his position is. He says, what does the Lord say to, to his servant? What does he say to me? What does my Lord have to say to me? The first thing Joshua is told in this little episode is there in verse 15. What does the Lord say? Well, the Lord says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Does that ring any bells to anyone? Who are you thinking of when you hear that? Moses. Okay, it's not just that they all wore sandals, but I'm sure they did. But that's the exact words that Moses was was uh, told, uh, the instruction he was given when he met the Lord in the burning bush, um, and he heard him speaking to him, and that was just before Moses was going to go to Pharaoh to to say, "Let my people go," and that God was going to bring judgment on Egypt. And this is an, uh, almost a repeat thing, isn't it? God is confirming that he is with his people. He is with Joshua. And that this is what he's going to do. Whatever happens in the next chapter, this is the Lord's doing. And he is, he is with them. Um, so we're meant to see that that, that confirmation of, of Joshua. The Lord is with him. Um, the jo- you might notice that the place on which Joshua is standing is holy. That means that the land itself, the very place where he stands, and everything in it has been set apart for God, for his purposes. That's what the word holy means. And the Lord continues to speak to Joshua in chapter 6. So the conversation continues. We get verse 1 of chapter 6, but then we get verses 2 to 5, which is the Lord continuing what he, he's going to do. Shall we read, read that together? And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valour. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do this for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. That's how it starts, isn't it? That's the instructions. I'm doing this. The Lord is with them and Jericho will fall. And, just to, and, and, and he makes those instructions very clear. 
Those of you who were here in chapter 4, as I said, might recognise this same procession. You know, what, who's, who's to go in this group, this, this, this kind of procession, uh, as they march around the city? Well, it's going to be the priests carrying the ark, and it's going to be uh, the fighting men. But all they're to do, really, is to walk, and not even to make a noise. And it shows that God is the one who's doing this. He's going to prove it, and he's going to prove it in the most remarkable of ways. They're not even going to do anything towards it. And he is going to bring down the walls of Jericho. It's a deja vu moment because in chapter 4, God was with them as they went through the Jordan. And he's going to do, if he could overcome that barrier, then surely this man-made barrier is no obstacle for him. This leads us on to the second picture of what it's like to meet God. And that's Jericho. So let's read of that in verse 6 to 21. Meeting God, Jericho. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march round the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And then you get the, the first day, the second day, and all the subsequent days until the sixth day. And on the seventh day, in verse 15... On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers who were sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man, straight before him, and they captured the city. What's it like to meet God? Well, for Jericho, it's to meet him in judgment. And uh, this is a solemn testimony, isn't it, to God's judgment. I asked you beforehand as you are reading it to come with the part of this chapter that you found the hardest. Did you do that? I wonder if you did that. Um, And my guess is that if you did that, it was verse 21, which I haven't read. Verse 21 says this. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Everything. Okay. Everything is destroyed. And what if I I asked you to do that because it's a helpful thing to do. If you ask yourself, what's the bit of the Bible that I, I resist? What's the bit of what I'm reading do I, do I resist? And then you ask yourself, well, honestly, why am I resisting it? Why do I not want that to be the case? It can really reveal something about our hearts. It's a good thing to do. Um, and I did this. So um, it was uncomfortable, but not for the reason I first thought it would be. And when I was thinking about this, it wasn't uncomfortable because God's asking the Israelites to, do, to bring the judgment. Because it made me think, hang, hang about, there's tons of other nations in the Bible 
who are used by God to bring down even God's people when they were doing wrong, yeah? So that wasn't the bit that was so uncomfortable. What I realised I felt uncomfortable about was the scale. The fact that absolutely everything is destroyed and nothing is left standing. That was the bit I found uncomfortable. And why was I... uh, And if you look at verse 21, it does labour that point, doesn't it? Let's read it again. They devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So it labours the point. Every living thing faced that judgment. And that's what felt uncomfortable. And I asked myself, everything, is that really necessary? Isn't that too heavy-handed of God to do that? Well, questioning our response does give us an opportunity to see what's going on in our hearts. To ask ourselves the follow-up questions like, what alternative did I expect? And why did I want that? Well, what, expect, what alternative do we want? Well, we, we want a softer approach, don't we? One that is far less final as the, than this. One that is far less decisive. And why would I want that? Well, to start with, I guess it gives me some wriggle room with my own sin and my own life. It pro- if it provided me, if this example provided me with one exception to the rule, I wouldn't have to face up to the seriousness of my own sin. Or the judgment of God that I might face. Maybe we fail to see that this is God's holy judgment on sin. It's not just a case of man getting their own back on other men or battles or that kind of thing. This is God's judgment. And there's a different dimension going on here. And it's quite final, isn't it? It's quite scary. It's, it's frightening. What it does reveal, thinking about my response to it is that I don't see how just how dangerous sin is um, why everything well I think it's because sin spreads absolutely everywhere and that's why it's so dangerous um, if you want to turn with me uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 20 that's the fourth book of the Bible is that right no it's the fifth book of the Bible <laughs> Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18. Kenny, would you read that for us? Verses 16 to 18. But in the cities of this You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hevites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Um, Turn back to Joshua, and let's read from Joshua 6, uh, verse 18 to 19. Could you read that as well? But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, 
lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon them. But both silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, they shall go into the treasure of the Lord. Why does God destroy every trace of sin? Because sin spreads. And the, sin, the hearts, our hearts, are so evil, as evil as the people of Canaan, of Jericho, they would just take just one thing, even just one item, passed, passing over hands to the Israelites, to one person. And then the result is that the whole camp of Israel would, in time, follow this, exactly the same practices and do exactly the same things. So the question of, is this too heavy-handed? Well, I guess that shows, doesn't it, that I think that sin isn't all that dangerous. It's not that deadly. It doesn't spread like this. And actually, I haven't realised just how the capacity of my own heart for evil to pick up every little bit of evil and to, to run with it, to have a field day. So maybe that's you too. Maybe reading this, you're thinking, oh, I just, I'm just reacting against it. I don't like this. I don't like that God's doing this. And yet, it reveals that we, th- we haven't seen the seriousness of sin and what it's like before holy God. Unless God removes every trace of it, it will spread. Their hearts are our hearts, just the same. They will do evil as the people of Jericho did. And it will spread. You might have noticed, haven't you, in the reporting on the virus, the thing that gets people really, really upset or really kind of worried about the virus lately is a new strain. And the reason the new strain is the focus is because the new strain transmits even more effectively than the previous ones. So all the while we're thinking, okay, it's, it's, it, we kind of can sense, we know what its potential is for spreading. We're not all that bothered. We can kind of deal with it and think we can manage it. But as soon as it's like, oh no, this is out of control, that's the point at which there's severe action that's needed. And that if we took that analogy and saw it in terms of our own sin in our lives, maybe we'd be scared. Maybe we'd be concerned about what happens to us and to our lives. And the, the fact that sin can so easily spread in our lives and does, it takes over. Um, because it spreads. Um, so what's it like when people who are unrepentant, they don't see God's, they, they've heard of God's salvation, but they don't think they need it. What they do is they shut up shop and they say, first one of chapter seven, six, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went it out and none came in. One response is to say, hey, we know we're like this, but God, you're just not, you're not getting involved in my life. <laughs> Batten down the hatches. No, you're not getting involved in my life. And that unrepentance, really, we're gonna, we see, don't we, where it leads. We get a picture here, which is frightening, but that's because it's of God's judgment. It's not just of um, war, the normal kind of violence that we expect to see. This is God's judgment, and it's absolute. And that should wake us up and make us think. But it's not the full story, is it? Because if we're asking ourselves, where does that leave me? Which is our question. 
Where does that leave me? And that's the heart of Jericho, which says, no, God, you're not coming in. And we see where that leads. It's not the full story, is it? Because there's Rahab. And we've met Rahab before, back in chapter 2. We met her in Jericho. And she'd heard of the mighty works of God, the salvation, his salvation, the fact that he saves people, and the fact that he judges people. And she realised that he was the one true God and that she needed to turn to him. And so she switched sides. That's all she did. She decided, I'm on the wrong side. I'm on the losing team. I need to be on God's side. And that was her response of faith. Um, and, and we hear about her here in, in this chapter, don't we? So if you read down in verse... Can anyone find it? Uh, verse 22, we'll read to the, uh, from 22 to verse 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young man who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom God sent to spy out Jericho. You might remember that, that, that Rahab was given one thing, one sign of her safety, uh, a promise. And she pretty much had to entrust entirely that promise was going to be kept by the people of God. And the, the, the sign was a, a little cord, a, short, a scarlet cord that was to be placed in her window. That was exactly the same colour as the blood that was over the doorposts in Egypt, as the judgment fell on all of Egypt. And it's the only thing that was going to keep Israel safe. And it's the only thing that Rahab going to keep Rahab safe. And that is the Lord Jesus, the fact that he died on the cross, that his blood was spilt. That his blood meant that we could not face God's judgment, but be forgiven. And in the judgment to come, when he returns, we would not face that. And that is exactly the same promise that we have for being safe from God's judgment. So Rahab was in Canaan. She was in Jericho, and yet she is safe because of this deliverance. Um, God is both patient and holy and merciful. And the, the thing is, where do we stand with him? Are we, are we right with him? Do we need, is there, do, do we need to... Acknowledge the fact that he's there. Do we need to acknowledge that he's done something in order for us to be safe with him and that we would otherwise be facing his judgment? Uh, so let me encourage you, as I will myself as well, um, let's respond to this today uh, and let's, let's think of what it means for, for those around us as well. Um, the, the desperate need for us to know mercy in the face of his coming judgment. Let's pray. Father God, uh, you are holy and every trace of sin is offensive to you and um, it warrants your judgment. 
And we rail against that. We, we don't like that because we think we're the ones who should call the shots. And yet, it is who you are. You are holy. And there is no other. And uh, thank you as well that you are merciful and patient and kind. That even though Jericho was sitting in their sin and resisting you, persisting in that, that you gave them this day-by-day reminder and seven times on the last day that you were coming. Thank you that you do not leave us without the warning. Thank you that you show us again and again and again that Jesus will return. Please, we'd be ready for you on that day. Would be those would we be those who have trusted your salvation alone can keep us safe? We pray. Uh, would you do that that in us today? We pray. Amen. Amen.